know, when I was younger, I held deep ideals around it and expectations. And now I don't have ideals or expectations because I suppose from a philosophical perspective, you start to realize that you have no clue about what life means and why it is the way we are or how we've ended up here collectively together. And, you know, you realize that your action is in a sea of many people's actions and it's both deeply meaningful but also at the same time kind of esoterically not meaningless but kind of a drop in the ocean. Welcome to Priorities, the podcast about the things in life that really matter. I'm your host, journalist and coach Lily Silverton and each week along with a roster of incredible guests I'll be exploring how priorities inform and transform our lives sharing mindset tips, strategies, tools, and inspiration to help you prioritize your own life. We'll be covering what we think is important and unimportant, what we'd like to work on a little more, and the moments that changed our priorities and lives forever. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is entrepreneur and creative activist Sam Roddick, and it's going to be hard to sum up her social and environmental justice work in a short intro. Perhaps her most famous venture is Coco de Mer, the ethical lingerie and erotica brand, which she founded in 2001 and sold 10 years later. In her work with indigenous communities, she's collaborated on a number of projects globally, Food of Esper, Choose Earth, and more recently, the Solidarity Trading Company. She's also collaborated on Farming the Future, a multi-organisation initiative to strengthen agroecological movement here in the UK. She's directed a number of activist-based art installations, including a current exhibition on at the Barbican in London titled Our Time on Earth. But all that could make her sound like she's a bit dry or earnest, and as you'll hear, she's really the opposite with a fiendish sense of humour and unique and, I think, useful outlook on life. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Sam. Mm. Hi. Hi, so nice to see you, by the way. So nice to see you. How are you doing this morning? Um, I am a little tired, but I'm good. It's nice. It's like, this is like a treat. Hmm. Do you have any sort of routine in the morning? No, I don't have that much of a routine. I'm not very routined. I'm kind of getting to the position where I'm thinking I need to be routined. And (laughs) it's like, essentially, it's like my worst nightmare having a routine. But now it's kind of like you hit a certain age and you're like, I think it's actually going to be a pleasure if I kind of routine myself out. (laughs) What would your routine look like? If what, from an idealistic perspective, not from a like a habitual behavior perspective. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's fantasize. Right. So my routine would be wake up in bed, stretch in bed, like really get into like the relax and wake up. I think literally put on music. I think that really sets the mood. And then probably have a cup of tea, nice herbally. Then do yoga, awesome. Have a sh- This is exactly what I don't do, by the way. <laughs> um, have a shower, go for a walk and have a talk to somebody get back work I mean I haven't even eaten 
but like um maybe have something easy to eat and then work and that will be it or maybe actually get up have a cup of tea and write or draw roll out of bed yoga it shower nature walk come back in a work it's like literally the opposite of what I do. <laughs> literally. I think it's probably the opposite of what most people do who are listening yeah. to this. It's all very mm-hmm. good and well talking about routines, but getting them done um, is is so much harder. If you could pick one thing from that, what would it be? Well, I think, you know, like yoga and meditation changed my life 100%, you know. But I've actually only just realized I am like, like, I think it's obvious to everyone else who's around me, but actually, like, to anybody. I've always known I'm dyslexic, but I always never thought it was only dyslexia I had. So, like, I listened to this podcast called ADHD Female, and they were they found themselves really funny. There's two presenters. They find themselves hysterical. And at first, I was like, oh, God, you guys are so annoying. And then the more I listened to them, the more I liked them. And then I was like, holy shit, I am so ADHD, but off the Richter scale. So I think within that, I just have to kind of like accept certain traits that I have. But also what I've learned from them is you can hack those traits. So now I'm rethinking my habitual behavior patterns and how what ones to hack and what ones to keep and how to hack them. It's like really, and it's been really interesting because it's actually a bit of a game changer for me. I'm 50 and it's a game changer. It's quite interesting. And what I like about it is not like, oh, I've got a diagnosis because I can't be asked for a diagnosis. But what I have been is taking on those ways that you can kind of divert your behavior patterns that like not necessarily like that fight against your kind of well-being. And just go for the hacks and the hacks work. And you're like, bloody hell. It's kind of simplifying it rather than kind of complicating it with the psychology or, you know what I mean? Or like the yeah. shame, totally. all those kind of things. Like more about action, essentially. Yeah. Like building so awareness be- and then action on it. Give us an yeah. example. I'd love to hear. So, for instance, I've never been able to go to a yoga class ever. And I love yoga, right? Like yoga is like, honestly, I've been doing it since I was in my early 20s. And I call myself a highly accomplished professional beginner because I'm always beginning yoga. <laughs> like literally like, you know, like, um, but it's a game changer for me. You literally can feel your bones breathe. And it kind of like you can feel your capillaries kind of, you know, like those like day glow things. You know, mm. like those luminescent things you get in festivals. That's what it feels like when I do yoga to my bones. And, you know, but I can't go to a class. And apparently that's what ADHD is. You can't get frigging to a class on time. You can't, it gets an overwhelm with certain kind of very simple, um, you know, like rudimentary domestic chores are the very difficult to kind of do like I am but I've always done and this is privileged and it's like really embarrassing to say it but done private yoga lessons 
because if they turn up, I turn up, you know, like it's having to get across somewhere. So it's just like, it's those kind of things. And then you realize that you need body doubles to do certain things. And a body double is somebody who basically accompanies you in order to connect with your, I suppose, your parasympathetic nervous system to help you focus on these certain kind of like rudimentary kind of tasks that allow you to achieve what other people find very simple to achieve. That's really interesting. Yeah. So that's one. And the that's idea of hacking by having essentially like someone who's your support system in order yeah. to complete what, what some people might consider simple tasks. Yeah. So you basically say, for instance, say like if you don't, you know, you could say if you had two ADHDs, maybe, I don't know, or like a friend or whatever, you can say, listen, I need to get to this class every Tuesday at this time can you get on the phone to me 15 minutes before I need to leave? Then they will, you're like putting on your shoes, getting out the door, getting, and they company you to getting you to the blinking class. And that could work, for instance. Accountability buddy. Yeah, like an accountability buddy. Yeah, exactly. And that's like a massive game changer. So that's just one one of the many different hacks that I kind of learned that I think is just like, you know, really useful. Sam, talk to me about one of your big priorities in life. Well, my big priority in life, I think it's always been the same, but the way I do it has totally changed. And that is to really be an agent of like both ethereal and practical kind of uh collective good so how am i contributing to transforming or changing the world into a better place and it's as simple as that and it's really on many different ways it's like a spiritual and it's like a vocational kind of occupation and you know, when I was younger, I held deep ideals around it and expectations. And now I don't have ideals or expectations because I suppose from a philosophical perspective, you start to realize that you have no clue about what life means and why it is the way we are or how we've ended up here collectively together. And, you know, you realize that your action is in a sea of many people's actions and it's both deeply meaningful but also at the same time kind of esoterically not meaningless but kind of a drop in the ocean for me it is a life purpose and it's actually a service the pleasure of it is in the collaboration those who else are doing the other the work and then the the vehicle is creativity, is utilizing creative thinking, creative strategy, creative emotional um, kind of inquiry. But actually, the delivery is practical. And it's actually in the practicalities of like doing collective good that the real kind of fruititious return comes. And it's not like, 
you get to solve a world problem and you don't. But what you do get to see is these incremental outputs from all of the effort you've put in that are deeply rewarding. But at the same time, not you're not capable of owning it because you're not the only one doing it. So I think it's like it's quite humbling. So that's my that's what I care about and that's what I will do on both a micro kind of level and also on a macro level. And I've always done it and I've just now kind of like in my fifties owning it in a way. And has it always been there, like, you know, since you were very young? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I came out that way, really. And, you know, it's not, it's it sounds quite dry, but I'm a very naughty, mischievous and actually quite like deeply flawed individual. And actually, I love flaws. Like, I love the bit of wrong in trying to do the right and I actually even like the choice of doing the right when you know fully well you're capable of doing something wrong. So it's even that kind of tension, I think, is quite kind of just full of life in that way. And you, and also, I can't bear earnest, boring, over-sincere kind of uh, thinking. I find it too dry not very joyous and not real. So I actually think, you know, it can be from a very, I love kindness. So people who are, they might not, I don't care about like the grand ethical gestures of sustainable thinking or systems change or all of that stuff. Actually, a simple act of kindness is so profound and can, and anybody can do it. And to witness that, I think is such a delight. So yeah. From from a young age, I've just been driven in that way. But my, I think it's kind of a cultural and also a bloodline thing, because like you know, when you look at my ancestry, there's always been deep rebellion, and you know, like people singing from their own, you know, hymn. What, how how do you say it? songbook or whatever? I can't, yeah. don't know that f- phrase. So I'm sure, like I've been cultured into it from my grandmother and my mum and my dad. But also, I think it is like innate within you, you know. I think as well with your mother's legacy, sometimes the children of people who have that level of, um, I guess, notoriety within their field, Mm -hmm. as your mum did, um, can sometimes rebel against it. Whereby for you, it's really been an inspiration, an aspiration. Mm. Yeah, they could. But I think the thing is, is it wasn't just my mum, it was my great grandmother mm. and my grandma. Mm. So like my great grandmother was a part of a traveling community, like circus people, and they accumulated historically quite a huge track of mountain land in Italy. And then they she gave all of that land back to the tenants. So, you know, like there are like that like I think so because my family was my grandmother's my mother's side of the family was circus people. I think money used to travel quite freely with them. So I think there is a culture of like, you know, hustle. And, you know, I'm not saying that they were all good people because I'm, I can tell you right now, I bet you they were, were not, right? But the way that they related to money, I think, was a lot more free rather than accumulation because they were travelers. They traveled 
with the circus. Do you know what? You can't, you can only carry as much as you can carry. And I'm sure they have like bank accounts and stuff like that, but I'm also sure that they will fuse bank accounts. I should imagine, you know, being circus people. But, um, so my mum had a very interesting, and my grandmother had a very interesting relationship to money that I think didn't brew fear about loss. Mm. Easy you know, to go. Yeah, they ba- they basically hypervalued, which I also think is a bit of a problem, to be fair, work ethic. I think people work ethic, really like hold work ethic as a, a virtue. But as we know, an extreme work ethic gets you an American kind of labor system, which is absolute virtual hell. No holidays. The prior, you know, the status is your work position. The hierarchy of like, you know, the work kind of force. It's not really valuing nature. It doesn't really value family. Doesn't really value celebration or joy. All the things that really make life worth living. You know, you get America and you get China and you get hell. It's a big question for Monday morning. Do you think that systemic change is needed? Globally, hundred percent. I don't think I. I don't think anybody with a with real brains can question that. Mm. I mean, it's systemic change means changing of infrastructure, and the infrastructure is prejudice. And it's filtering out the infrastructures that we have, like, you know, our institutions, healthcare, education, financial system, policing system, all of like the regulatory, institutional systems, business have designed people out of it. So it's kind of built, inequality is built into our infrastructure. So if we want more harmonious kind of, um, you know, envir- a culture that is much more harmonious, we're going to have to really change. It's like, but, but culturally that's very difficult because we are so set in our belief system. So it becomes a conundrum you know, negotiation, and that's what you see with, like, the green economy is they're negotiating a transition but keeping the same system, and it's just impossible. It's just, like, not going to work. We're just going to come up with the same issues again and again until we basically say, actually, we're prepared to get rid of it and live a different way. That's going to take a lot. Because it's not that it's impossible, because we can design anything we want to design. It's just that we, our belief system is so rigid. We're so frightened of it because we're frightened about how the way we treat people. So we're frightened of slavery, but yet we embed slavery into our clothing and our food system and our commodity system. We're so scared of actually equitizing because we're scared of being treated the way we're treating people. So it's like, it's, it's hitting something very, very visceral when you're talking about change. And that's why we're so hanging on to our system, because those who basically, like in the West, are benefiting from all of the violence that our system inflicts upon other people, we're like, mm, we don't want that to happen. 
to the benefactors. So we're like, no, 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 we're not going to do much about it. We're just going to pretend and go around the surface of things and try to clean things up enough to maintain power. So, yeah, I believe, I really think we need systemic change, but do I think it's going to happen? I think it will happen because we're going to collapse. We're seeing a collapse now. It's that fear, right? Mm-hmm. How do you marry your feelings of, you know, the, the dire need for systemic change, that the system is broken, the, the way in which we are operating, you know, is really destroying our planet as well as everything else mm-hmm. with just living a daily life? Well, I think there's certain things like daily life. I'm lucky because a, I've been dealing with the subject since I was very young. So I worked in the Amazon when I was 17. I've worked, you know, like from a very, very young age that I have been exposed and working on various different kind of subjects, like social justice, environmental justice stuff. So I've got a great accumulation of experience. Then there's, I think there's just acceptance. This is the way the world is. And then there's experiment. It's like my life is an experiment. I'm going to try. Like, do we, I'm not going to, I'm not going to believe I've come up with the answer because that's just like literally like megalomania called insanity, right? But I do believe in experiments and being playful with how we experiment with what we do. So I'm very lucky because I kind of figured out, I've hedged my bets of where I believe true change can come from. And I, I'm not like, um, you know, I grew out of activism at quite a kind of a key age, which is I find activism all about deconstructing the current system. And it's very angry and it's filled with them, us blame duality. And I'm just not interested in that. Like I can't handle that because we're all participating, whether we like it or not, we're somewhere in the system participating. So for me, it's like, where do I really believe? the connection can come from and that clearly comes from the earth those who tend and care for the earth you know farmers those you know like the oldest professions essentially farming and prostitution do you know what i mean like two that deals with fertility in some degree and i kind of like really got into both like not prostitution, but, you know, Coco de Mer, the sex shop that I used to own. But now I'm working with the agroecological UK food movement, which I did do before when I was 19, 20. I was a part of the seed sovereignty movement. I studied permaculture. I studied herbal medicine, all of that kind of stuff. And that kind of, so now I've gone back into that, but I also work and so from a very young age, I also worked for the indigenous rights movement for many, many years. Continued, but I've really dived back into it. So those are the two areas for me that provide me the most hope because it's cultural, like our food, how we eat our bodies, how we connect to the earth, you know, the moon, the seasons, weather, like in this way, you know, it's like there's a reteaching in there of like, look, all we need to do is become busy workers, tending and caring nature. So how do we do that? 
So, of course, like we're in a collective mental health crisis. There's nobody who's escaping mental health right now, whether it's due to the pandemic or whether it's due to, you know, collective fear or climate or losses in the financial market. You know, we're all being affected or social media. You know, in the world is, you know, mental health is really interesting because I think mental health is the, the weather within inside our own psyche. You know, it comes with the same kind of rhythms. It comes with the highs and the lows. And I really feel like for us to relearn what does it mean to care for each other, for the earth, for ourselves has to be in tandem, you know, and I get to do that. I get to really focus on different ways I can support those who are tending to the ground through agriculture, agroecology, through land systems, through our food system, through nutrition and health. But also I get to philosophically and also supportively work with the indigenous rights movement doing the same thing because they are our original farmers there are true nature-based farmers you know like archaeologically they have proved that the amazon is a dense garden right it's the thickest most diverse food garden in the world and that has been managed and planted and cared for and tended to and understood by indigenous communities so we've got a lot to learn because we've done a lot of unlearning. We've done a lot of denial. But I think that is a compass. Once you start in that, you start to shift and change. You start to learn. You start to kind of reorientate yourself. And suddenly the world doesn't feel frightening anymore because you can actually see the fruits of your labor. You know, soil regeneration comes with great, you know, imp- like putting composts or utilizing kind of like drenches that can basically heal like nutritionally deficient biomes, like populating your own digestive system while populating the earth's digestive system is you, you start to feel better. You start to see birds come back. You, you know, nature is abundant and it really wants to live. And once you start to kind of like invest in, not only yourself, because I think we have, there's a lot of spiritual bypassing when people over, overlook, overtake them. Furiously here. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, how do I take care of you? And how do I take care of the bees? And how do I take, without it like overstretching you? I think there's a joy in it. You know, I so I, that's kind of how I deal with it. With the, um, with a lot of self help is that it is just that it's self help. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the reasons that seek, uh, searching for better mental health through those channels often mm-hmm. falls short is because mm-hmm. so much of our health and well-being in you know inverted um, commas whatever that means is about looking outwards mm-hmm. and community and how we can serve and that's that's what builds like robust internal well-being not just constantly asking. What do I need? But really, mm. well, I think the biggest problem philosophically is uh, the Western culture objectifies everything. You know, remember we did, you know, and that's kind of the objectification 
like we've objectified a tree. We don't see a tree as an ecosystem. We see it as an oak. And we're not really, we don't understand how it functions as a sentient being. We've just objectified it or we've objectified a carrot, right? But we don't really know the consequences, all of the consequences of what it means when a carrot grows. And so like we've commodified everything. And within that, we have hyper invested in individuality. And yet it's the greatest lie of all times. Individuality does not exist. We might believe we have a separate psyche, but our separate psyche is in tangent with everything else that is living and existing at the same time as we do. And therefore, and I've really got to understand this by working with indigenous communities, because in indigenous communities, everything, like true indigenous communities, everything is deeply collective. And I've really understood why giving up your individuality is actually dangerous for Westerners. Is actually, you know, there's a visceral fear of letting go of your individuality because if you live, give up your individuality, you're giving up your rights. You know, look at those who have the least individuality, those who are homeless, those who are refugees, those who are prostitutes. All of these people are kind of dissolved into a mass of lack of identity. And they're not, they, they have no place. And it's, it's very like, you know, so those who have a hyper individuality, celebrity, for instance, influencers who are hiding the workforce underneath them that have made them famous. You don't get to see how many people are attached to their careers or how many people are benefiting from their careers because we've created this illusion. That they are singular, they have a singularity to their talent. And that's just a lie, right? Like we're, we're, we're selling ourselves lies the whole time. So in order for like the wellness industry to work, it has to hyper up individuality because suddenly if you don't, you're doing shit for free. So how do you commodify that? It's like really problematic and true happiness is beyond commodification. Is everything other than commodification? You know, like people don't want to take their shit with them. They want their relationships. They want their friendships. They want time. You know, they want peace. They want all kinds of things that you can't actually commodify. Talk to me about your creativity. So I know you've worked as an artist for many years. I, oh, yeah. I first met you when you were at Michael Hoppen Gallery, which is yeah. 10, 12 years ago. Talk to me about how those, those, how creativity is a priority for you, what it does, how you feed it, mm. work with it, how it relates to the rest of your life. Um, I think I've, I've come to really, have a 360 degree value of it i think actually creativity is probably the most important thing that we have and i think there's a travesty when people are told they're not creative i actually think it's again it's another lie it's like a filtering system those are allowed to be creative and those who not and i actually think culture is the most important thing and you can see this kind of arise in a different way because we've over 
um, valued science, for instance, as a truth teller, as a compass of truth. And yet science is very much like bendable to those who are kind of controlling what the research of the science is for and where it's applied. So there's a real battle of what is true science and what isn't true science. And though I love science, I have to say, I think creativity is the compass of our imagination. It is the culture that we're existing and expressing ourselves. So theatre, dance, music, celebration, you know, the arts, making things with our hands, creative strategy, creative imagining, all of these things are really setting the container of what is to come in the future and actually what we believe is true or not true. And so for me, I think, you know, it's such a hugely powerful tool that is underutilized when it comes to kind of collective strategy so now I'm kind of doing like this like for one of the things that we're just starting to do which I'm really proud of I have to say where is using creativity to internally communicate to those who are kind of a part of like system change thinking so for instance how to use animation to communicate to the indigenous leaders and how to kind of utilize kind of multimedia that isn't for the public kind of domain, but to help us kind of identify where do we want to put our energy, but use really exceptional creativity, whether it's filmmaking, storytelling, writing, um, journalism, um, graphic arts, animation, and use that to help build internal networking strengths in kind of like revolutionary practice rather than trying to convert the wider public into understanding an issue and changing their behavior. And that's kind of how I'm using creativity now. And it's really exciting. Like, you know what we're doing. So we're doing storytelling, internal storytelling to ourselves. I think it will come as no surprise that one of my priorities is meditation and yoga. Not that I always find it easy to prioritize because I really don't, but I do know that I'm a better person when I do and my husband will probably back me up on that one. Anyway, I'm so thrilled that this episode is sponsored by my favorite yoga space in the world, Yoga on the Lane. They have a studio in East London, which I actually used to live across from, but they also have online classes and workshops. Their founder, Naomi Anand, I've been taking classes with for more than 15 years and can honestly say she and her cohort are some of the most intuitive, welcoming, and expert teachers I know. I'm also clearly not the only one to think this. Naomi is the author of two books, Yoga and Manual for Life and Yoga for Motherhood. So if you've never thought of getting on a mat before, or if you're a very seasoned practitioner, please do check them out. You won't regret it. www.yogaonthelane.com it's like internal comms yeah internal comms do you use this with choose earth well choose earth is external 
But okay. choose, but Voda Vespa underneath Choose Earth is where the network of indigenous leaders are. And yeah, we're using it. So we're kind of animating philosophy, for instance, to saying, okay, this is who we are and this is what we think. Creating digital maps that have an embedded multimedia um, files into it so we can see, you know, what we're doing, where, or listen to people that we're doing a digital m- map for a farmer cluster in Wales and we've interviewed all the farmers like we've got this amazing podcast journalist who's interviewing all the farmers and then embedding the audio into the map and they get to listen and hear each other but then we're also doing graphics around that in order to show what environmental kind of work they're each doing and where they're having issues around water and stuff and then we're kind of you know, writing poems and poetry to kind of, and it really creates a way to reinforce understanding, mm. sharing knowledge, strategizing about what you want to do collectively together, and also like really highlighting each person's kind of interest and vision. Mm. And it's quite powerful. I'm thinking also because people learn in such different ways. So mm. use imagery to connect with indigenous communities where language is very different is, mm-hmm. is one thing, but also within people in the, in the English speaking world, some people learn really well through poems, through poetry, through song, through, mm-hmm. you know, through dense academic texts and through imagery and so on. Yeah. Cause like one of the farm, farm clusters, a couple of them are doing their own scientific study with the university of Gloucester on, micro and soil and looking at carbons um like you know sequential i can never say it within the soil so within that map we can embed the files of their scientific study and so mm-hmm. i can go and go oh okay what are you doing well i'm doing a scientific study with this guy with gloss um, uh, reading university on saving in the ash trees so i've got, they can see what i'm doing and i can see what they're doing you know, and then it's like, oh shit, I could help you with this, or you know, it really does allow strategizing to occur. But it it means I can also listen to an audio file of one of the farmers and go have a real feel about who he is. You know, deobjectify the work, make it really personal and intimate. Mm. You know, there have been times in your life, Sam, where your priorities have just shifted in an instant. I, you know what? I honestly think it could look like that, but if you actually look at it, they're probably all the same. I think my methods have changed. Like, so when I was younger, I basically didn't understand what it was to not hold all the pieces, to be in charge. Now I'm really, really enjoying a deeper collaboration, really understanding that each one of us has our place to play within it. And there's a limitation to what we can do. And it, and actually to share that space is way more powerful. So I think that's been a real kind of shift of like, even though I initiate quite a lot of ideas, kind of I you know, a a lot of what I'm initiating is by listening to others 
So, you know, not I don't really believe in originality, to be fair. So what I'm initiating is by listening to what people say they want and then initiating that. And that's really working. But I think for me personally, I've never managed the work-live-life balance. And if I can achieve that, that would be the great, greatest achievement of my life. <laughs> like, so people who listen to this podcast regularly all know that I often say that I, I think it's a myth, this idea of a work-life balance, that I think we, we, we can copy nature and live more seasonally. So sometimes we will be working really, really hard and, and that will be the nature of things. And sometimes there will be periods of rest and so on and that it's not it's not easy or straightforward or simple or even achievable for many people to have a perfect balance to have a perfect mm. anything right let alone a balance yeah i do think like social media and the digital world has ruined a lot of my creative outputting mm. so if i could at least kind of cut that down massively Mm. that would really be I really do think it's a massive addiction yeah I agree it steals so much of that either creative time or downtime yeah and it really affects the psyche Mm. it's like I think it's really exasperated I don't know if like maybe I wasn't ADHD and I've just become because of like you know the two minute friggin like info that you're being constantly confronted with like maybe i'd be made adhd and that's what it's definitely changing our brains yeah and i just think you know people are like going oh everybody's adhd and it's like well maybe we're all being cultured into this behavior pattern that is really like not healthy so for you personally what steps would you take could you take do you want to take um i'm the kind of person who constantly says i don't want to eat crisps and then ravishes through the whole bloody packet so just fyi (laughs) you know i'm living in an uncomfortable reality of my own (laughs) behavior patterns which is if i could i would go back to drawing because i was an incessant drawer right up into my 40s and get off the internet but my work demands it like the beauty of it is the digital age is it connects me i can connect to the most remote parts of the world and be in collaboration you know like there's a lot of great that can come out of it you know so i just i don't know how i just don't know how to do that really yeah have you ever tried setting time limits or any of that kind of stuff? Um, yeah, I mean, I can get, I can live without it, like for two weeks or a month or whatever, but it does it does mean you know like you know we don't have land I don't have a landline anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like how do you manage it and remain moderate mm-hmm. and and also do the outputs you need to do. I don't know. Well, I'll find out. I'll figure it out. I'm going to take a month off in January and I'm going to figure it out. Oh, good. Can you come back on and let us know? (laughs) Yeah. See how long I last.
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like detox and it's straight back on. It's that constant battle between, as you say, using it for purposes of good. Mm. But do you know what I mean? It's, like, it's not It's not like I'm using it benevolently. I'm not really interested in all the eco-influences. I like, I'm right in there going, what is happening in trash culture? <laughs> and that obviously feeds like this dopamine part of the brain as well, right? Well, it also kind of, because what really, I'm really interested in what it says, it's like, it's a bigger indicator about our culture looking at that though that world of like what is happening to him is such an important subject for me because it kind of gives me a conglomerate understanding about where our world is going you know Britney Spears and him and mental health and control and lack of control it's like you know the polit the world of politics is crazy right now do you feel like we can, is it the right word, extrapolate from uh, Kanye West and Britney Spears? To like, Yeah, 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 I do, I do. Yeah, like I really do. I think we've turned into the Roman gladiators of social media, media. You know, they've been put in the ring. And we're like watching, like the, it is the gallows. Do you know what I mean? It's like the hanging gallows. Like when, you, when Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, it's like crazy. You're sitting there going, I can't believe this is a slugging match that's going on. Like, it's kind of like, I think it's actually way more important than people are really like stating. Because, you know, because we're like the rise of misogyny. Yeah. It's like, it's like ownership. It's like, so for instance, what's really interesting, say for instance, you know, like Bolsonaro, for instance, is leading, you know, he he has had done more environmental and direct murdering of anybody we know. I mean, one of the leaders who have done more murdering of and actually direct like an ecocide kind of effect on his behavior, how he's de, you know, and, and here we have corporations all over the world and governments colluding with him trading with him legitimizing him and then you get Kanye West who is toxic in what he's saying in the manner that he's saying it and we've defunded him like we are holding a righteous kind of you know like he got massively defunded he got penalized for very toxic remarks but at the and also inciting kind of like a hate response right mm. and it's not to legitimize them or saying but the contradiction is it, it, it's like smoke and mirrors and actually the real consequences of our collective action you know adidas vmh like you know their track record on their ethical kind of business is pretty much zero and yet we're, you know, and but we've got these kind of like these false figures of aiming all of our moral outrage at and the penalization and this false understanding of what does it mean to cancel. And it's like we're, we're, we're like hamsters in a wheel, but it's just pure entertainment. And the money that's made out of it is even huger, right? 
It's like the money that's made out of Ukraine right now is huge. Mm. Like, you know, it's the arms industry. The fuel industry has reclaimed itself back from an economic transition. It's like, it's all smoke and mirrors. And that's what's so amazing about social media. It's like, we're constantly fooling ourselves like addicts who believe that, you know, they've got an addiction to only whiskey, but not vodka. <laughs> Do you think, though, that... I don't know if you're going to be able to edit any of this, by the way. I'm not editing any of that, but um, <laughs> for sure. That we... That having someone like Kanye where the steps are very clear, you know, pile on to Adidas, pile on to whoever it is and, and ask them to cancel him and defund yeah, but- a very clear whereby the idea of taking on someone like Bolsonaro feels like you wouldn't even know how or where to start. Yeah, because we'd have to we'd have to hold our financial institutions to account, our banks. Yeah. We'd have to hold like we would have to it would the consequences would be in our pocket. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? We would have to hold ourselves to account because we're all eating from the very, you know, like, and also we would have to admit, admit there is no such thing as sustainable products because it's all infiltrated by the cartel in Brazil. I mean, I'm saying that because I know because I work there, right? So we'd have to face some clear truths that we're not really wanting to face. So I just think the thing is, is that what I'm saying is we've created a circus and we each have our own circuses that are being played out. And the framework that is being held is toxic. And whatever fits into that toxic framework is eventually to be successful has to be toxic. It's just because like social media requires a certain amount of kind of ed- a huge amount of editing. So editing content, editing like um, nuance. Um, it's, a, it's a mechanism that forces you to behave in highly deficient ways. So anybody who's utilizing and is holding success in it is is actually the worst example of where like it's just it's a destructive example of like what isn't fundamentally working and what's driving our society down the toilet and it's and it's really probably you know kim kardashian or donald trump or you know influencers as well that's why i love podcasts by the way i think podcasts are not like that I think podcasts are out of that realm because it allows a deeper, longer conversation to be had and it can inspire people to look further, to research, to inquire, whereas social media is too much as a conveyor belt, so it's just chucking out the same thing and reconfiguring other people's content. Mm. Yeah, I recently mostly stepped away from social media and moved. I was seeing a lot of my sort of coaching content on there all right thinking that i had to and then really found out about substack where you can put these weekly newsletters which felt a lot more 
me, first of all, because as a journalist, I, I like long form. I like to be able to drone on and on mm-hmm. about it. And have really felt a much better connection to my community, to mm-hmm. my own work as well, mm-hmm. than trying to churn out these little, you know, tiny meditations or short coaching tips, which I, I hope did help some people and were there and existed, but I don't know how much a little mental health tip helps when you're scrolling through for an hour and you read something that says, you know, how to take care of your mind this week or whatever it is. I'm not sure really the impact of that versus, Mm. as you say, something with nuance and something long form where someone can dive in a bit and create their own opinions about it as well. Mm. And also like have a chance to have agree with some opinions and disagree with others. Mm. You know, to understand we're all complex human beings mm-hmm. that actually have a limit of their own experience. So there's going to be huge areas where I'm completely ignorant. Like, actually, I don't know Kanye, so I am actually ignorant around it. It's just based on opinion from social observation. But I do know quite a bit about Brazil and the indigenous communities because I've been there. I see it. I've got relationships with people. Like, I've had to deal with people who've got, like, you know, a price on their head like who are like under death threat i've you know know of the communities that have been shot at and massacred i know things that people don't know like i know what the drug cartel are doing you know like i know what bolsonaro how he's had an impact because i have a physical experience and i and also direct relationships with the corruption there so that i feel very confident about i understand the nuances and the complications but you know there's huge areas where i'm completely ignorant like we all are Mm. and it's like do we allow ourselves to be ignorant or do we have to really believe our beliefs like i'm pretty swayable like you know i think that's one of the most important things like important points to make is to be flexible in our minds in the same way that our bodies need to be flexible to work well our minds need to be as well mm. constantly changing our opinions and you know perspectives should be constantly changing as we learn and experience that doesn't mean like core values of what we think is important like deep 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 down mm-hmm. it should necessarily be changing but maybe they are as well yeah and forgive and forgiving mm-hmm. i think actually forgiveness is quite important What's something that's not important at all to you? What's not a priority to you, Sam? I think ambition is not important. For me. I mean, it's hard because I'm like, you know, right now I'm trying to save my ash trees. And if you get, if you kind of go, like I've done a deep inquiry and found these scientists in Reading University and we're doing these experimental treatments to save these old trees, right? And some, if I actually break that down, it's like, oh God, that's really deeply ambitious, right? But do I believe I can save the ash trees? Is it really that important? I'm just going to give it a go. And I'm up for failing, but I'm going to give it a hundred wild percent. So it's like, it's actually like not really worried about outcome. Mm. Just like 
put in the effort. Mm. Take a punt. Be experimental. Give it a go. But also, like, be strategic, but not tied up in believing the strategy. Just kind of like, so it's like, is that's kind of what I feel like. It's just like, turn up and give it a go with everything you might know. But like, don't overbelieve. You know, like, don't, 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 don't tie up your success. Like, give up trying to be successful reframing success i'm zero interested in success like i really think it's toxic go for the process rather than the goal yeah 100 percent. because goal is really disappointing mm. but actually then you might miss the magic you know like oh shit this happened instead well wow, that's pretty wild you know like yeah process not goal 100 100 percent all right, Sam, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you goodness. so much. As always with interviewing you, I'm going to struggle to find a pull quote because there's so much in there to make me think. Mm. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh my God. I listened to like, honestly, just quickly, quickly I listened to like me interviewing Glyn Perskill, the scientist who's like the lead on biochar and saving these asteroids. When I actually listened back to myself, I was like, I am so deeply inarticulate, but in my head, I knew exactly what I meant. And it was like, it was crazy. It was funny. I, I completely disagree with you there. I think you're incredibly articulate. Well, you'll listen back on this. We'll listen back. You'll yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, you'll be like, at the moment, I knew what she was saying. When I listen back, it's like, what the fuck is she talking about? Now that I'm no longer staring into her eyes, it actually makes no yeah. sense. Yeah, psychically <laughs> transmitting to you. Anyway, it was lovely speaking to you. You too. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye, love. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review as this helps other people find it. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.